peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Showcase the talents of his son, Ingram Graham Parsons, who sang and played keyboards and the guitar. Circa 1963, Graham got a folk combo together that was known as the Shilohs. During the summer of 1964, the summer before Graham's senior year of high school, the band spent a month in New York. During that brief time, Parsons, as fate would have it, met and bonded with Brandon DeWild, Richie Fure, and John Phillips. He would meet up with all three again a couple years later in Laurel Canyon. Despite having expressed an early preference for Annapolis or West Point, Graham applied to Harvard and Johns Hopkins, and despite decidedly unimpressive grades and test scores, he was accepted by Harvard, purportedly due to an essay he submitted that he likely didn't actually write. During his last year of high school, Graham and the Shilohs booked an hour-long gig at the campus radio station at, of all places, Bob Jones University. At his high school graduation in June of 1965, Graham was in his cap and gown and all set to proceed with the ceremonies when he was pulled aside and informed that his mother, Avis, had suddenly and unexpectedly passed away. Seemingly unaffected by the news, he chose to participate in the ceremonies. A classmate and friend has said that there was no sign that anything was troubling Graham that day as he went through the graduation rituals. Avis had died in the hospital, reportedly of alcohol poisoning, right after Bob Parsons had smuggled her in a bottle of scotch. Graham's mother was just 42 at the time of her death. His father, Coondog, had only made it to the age of 41. Neither of their kids, Graham or little Avis, would make it even that far. Soon after his mother's death, Graham received a draft notice from the Selective Service. Not to worry, though. Bob quickly got him a 4F deferment, and Graham happily went off to Harvard, enrolling in September of 1965. By February of 1966, just five months later, Graham had had enough of Harvard, and he withdrew. According to some sources, he never really attended school at all but rather spent all of his time taking in the folk music scene in Cambridge and putting his own band together. Graham arrived at Harvard a few years too late to catch that scene at its peak. In the early 1960s, the college town that had been one of the cradles of the resurgent folk movement, hosting such luminaries as Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Bob Newworth, Tom Rush, Pete Seeger, Richard and Mimi Farina, Jeff and Maria Moldauer, Eric Anderson, and Joni Mitchell. 
The epicenter of the Cambridge folk scene was the legendary Club 47, opened in 1958 as a jazz and blues venue. A very young Joan Baez, whose reputedly CIA-connected father worked at nearby MIT, was the first folkie to take the stage, not long after the club opened. Dylan reportedly first performed there in 1961, taking the stage between the build acts. The scene hit its peak in the summer of 1962, which was the Cambridge equivalent of the Hates Summer of Love. The Cambridge scene, and others in Greenwich Village and elsewhere, were necessary precursors to the Laurel Canyon scene, which was essentially created by taking the music of that earlier scene, particularly the work of Dylan and Seeger, and mixing it with the instrumentation being utilized across the pond by a band known as the Beatles. It is entirely fitting, then, that as with Laurel Canyon, the Cambridge scene came complete with its own resident psycho killer. In addition to the folk scene hitting its peak in the summer of 1962, something else newsworthy happened in Cambridge that summer. A lot of women started turning up dead. Six of them in that first summer alone, and seven more over the next couple of years. And as Susan Kelly noted in The Boston Stranglers, one of those victims was killed right across the street from Club 47. Just across the street from victim Beverly Salmon's apartment, a very young and not famous Joan Baez and an equally youthful and unknown Bob Dylan were playing to reverently hushed audiences at the Club 47. As the title of Kelly's book implies, there actually was no such person as the Boston Strangler, but that didn't stop authorities and the media from pinning all the murders on one Albert DeSalvo, far better known as the Boston Strangler. Just as Laurel Canyon would have Charles Manson as its unofficial mascot, the earlier scene in Cambridge had Albert DeSalvo. Cambridge had something else that Laurel Canyon would later have, Paul Rothschild, who worked at Club 47 and went on to produce The Doors. Folky Richard Farina, by the way, was the husband of Mimi Baez, Joan's younger sister. Farina had attended Cornell University as an engineering major. Cornell also happened to be where Joan and Mimi's dad, Albert Baez, conducted classified research. Albert Baez tended to move around a lot popping up for various periods of time at Stanford, UC Berkeley, Cornell, and MIT, all of which have been revealed through declassified documents as hotbeds of MKUltra research. Albert Baez also traveled abroad to France, Switzerland, and in 1951 to Baghdad, Iraq, where he'd spent a year purportedly teaching physics and building a physics laboratory at the University of Baghdad. 1951 also happened to be the year that Mossadegh was duly elected in neighboring Iran, and the CIA immediately began planting a coup to oust him, but I'm sure that that is just a coincidence. Anyway, Farina married Mimi when he was 26, and she was just 17. The two of them, along with Joan, became stars of the Cambridge folk music scene, which they were introduced to when Albert Baez moved the family to Boston in 1958 when he went to work at MIT. 
Richard and Mimi's marriage was a short one, alas, and Richard Farina was killed in a motorcycle accident in Carmel, California, on, of all days, April 30, 1966. On that very same day, in nearby San Francisco, Anton Zandor LeVay declared it to be the dawn of the Age of Satan. But perhaps I've gotten sidetracked here. During Graham's brief time at Harvard, he began gathering together what would become the International Submarine Band. When he dropped out in early 1966, he and his new bandmates moved to the Bronx in New York, where Graham rented an 11-room party house where marijuana and LSD flowed freely. One unofficial member of his band was child actor turned aspiring musician Brandon DeWilde, known in the 1950s as the King of Child Actors. Parsons and DeWilde worked together on demo tapes during their time in New York. In November-December 1966, nine months after leaving Harvard for New York, Graham ventured out to California. While there, he met a certain Nancy Ross, who at the time was living with David Crosby. In Ben Fong Torres's Hickory Wind, Ross provides some interesting biographical details. I grew up with David Crosby here in town. I was 13 when we met. David and I were part of the debutante set. My father was a captain in the Royal Air Force of England. I married Eleanor Roosevelt's grandson, Rex, at 16, 17. I was still married to Rex when I was with David. The marriage lasted a couple of years. I got an apartment and started designing restaurants for Elmer Valentine of Whiskey-A-Go-Go. At age 19, Ross went with Crosby up to his little bachelor apartment where I drew pentagrams on the wall. Soon after, Crosby bought a house on Beverly Glen and Ross moved in with him. That is where Graham Parsons found Nancy Ross and stole her away from David Crosby. Brandon DeWilde, who was a good friend of David's and Peter Fonda's, brought Graham up to our Beverly Glen house one Christmas time. According to Nancy, Graham quickly stole her heart. Shortly after, in early 1967, Parsons permanently relocated to Los Angeles with his band in tow. According to Fong Torres, Graham, who received up to $100,000 a year from his trust fund, a considerable amount of money in the mid-1960s, found a house for the rest of the band on Willow Glen Avenue, off Laurel Canyon Boulevard, and just north of Sunset. He and Nancy found an apartment together nearby. Meanwhile, back home, Bob Parsons had married Bonnie shortly after the death of Avis, and the newlywed couple had then moved with little Avis and Diane to New Orleans. Back in Waycross, the Connor family home that had been abandoned after Coon Dog's alleged suicide had been occupied since 1960 by the family of Sheriff Robert E. Lee. And no, I'm not making that up. In late 1968, on the eve of the election that put Richard Nixon in the White House, the stately home exploded from within and caught fire. The cause of the explosion was never determined. Once ensconced in the hills above Los Angeles, Graham Parsons and his band began recording what would prove to be their only album, Safe at Home which some pop music historians regard as the first country rock album. 
but others regard as a straight country album performed by guys who look like they should be playing in a rock band. Whatever the case, by the time the album was released in 1968, Graham had disbanded the International Submarine Band and officially joined the Birds, replacing the recently departed David Crosby, who had determined that there just wasn't quite room in the band for both he and his ego. Parsons' time with the Birds was rather brief, just four to five months, after which he was replaced by virtuoso guitarist Clarence White, who had been part of the Cambridge folk scene. Despite his brief tenure, Parsons is credited with having a major influence on the album that the band produced during that period, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Soon after leaving the Birds, Parsons ran into Richie Furet, who was casting about for a new band after the breakup of Buffalo Springfield. Graham and Furet considered working together, but quickly realized that they wanted to go in different musical directions. So Furet went to work putting Poco together, while Parsons assembled the Flying Burrito Brothers. By 1969, Graham's new band had taken shape, with Graham supplying lead vocals and guitar, Chris Hillman also on guitar, Chris Etheridge on bass, and Sneaky Pete Kleinow on pedal steel guitar. With various other local musicians sitting in, the band recorded and released The Gilded Palace of Sin. Bird Michael Clark would later join the band, as would soon-to-be Eagle Bernie Leadon. Also in 1969, late in the year, 23-year-old Graham hooked up with 16-year-old Gretchen Burrell. His new love interest was the daughter of high-profile news anchor Larry Burrell, who was also very well-connected in Hollywood. Before long, Gretchen had moved into Parsons' place at the notorious Chateau Marmont Hotel with her parents' blessings, because most wealthy parents, I would think, want their teenage daughter living in a debauched rock star's drug den. Another guest at the hotel at that same time, incidentally, was Rod Stewart, at whose home one of the victims of the so-called Sunset Strip killers would later be last seen. At the tail end of 1969, Parsons and his fellow Burrito Brothers had the dubious distinction of playing as one of the opening acts at the Rolling Stones' infamous free show at Altamont Speedway. Graham had become a very close confidant of the Stones, particularly Keith Richards, and he would later be credited with being the inspiration for the country flavor evident on the Stones' Let It Bleed album. Parsons had first met up with the Stones when they were in Los Angeles in the summer of 1968 to mix their Beggar's Banquet album. Also hooking up with the Stones around that same time was Phil Kaufman, who once boasted that he had slept with every one of the convicted murderesses in the Manson family. Kaufman initially lived with Charlie and his girls after being released from prison in March of 1968 and he thereafter remained what Kaufman himself described as a sympathetic cousin to Manson. He also went to work as the Rolling Stones road manager for their 1969 American tour, which is the type of job apparently best filled by ex-convict friends of Charles Manson. In the summer of 1969, following the curious death of Brian Jones in July, the Stones were back in L.A. to compete their Let It Bleed album and prepare for yet another tour. According to Ben Fong Torres, writing in Hickory Wind, 
Mick and Keith stayed at Stephen Stills' house near Laurel Canyon. Before Stills, the house had been occupied by Peter Tork of the Monkees. For the record, other reports hold that that house was in, not near, Laurel Canyon. On December 6, 1969, temporary Laurel Canyon residents Mick and Keith, along with permanent Laurel Canyon residents Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and the Flying Burrito Brothers, all gathered at a desolate speedway known as Altamont to stage a free concert. By the time it was over, four people were dead, and another 850 concert goers were injured to varying degrees mostly by members of the Hells Angels swinging leaded pool cues. The Angels had, of course, been hired by the Stones to ostensibly provide security. That decision is almost universally cast as an innocent mistake on the part of the band, though such a claim is difficult to believe. It was certainly no secret that the reactionary motorcycle clubs formed by former military men were openly hostile to hippies and anti-war activists. As early as 1965, they had brutally attacked peaceful anti-war demonstrators, while police, who had courteously allowed the Angels to pass through their line, looked on. It was also known that the Angels were heavily involved in trafficking meth, a drug that was widely blamed for the ugliness that had descended over the hate. Perhaps less well-known, was that more than a few of the biker gangs of the 1960s had uncomfortably close ties to Charlie Manson, particularly a club known as the Straight Satans, one of whose members, Danny DiCarlo, served as the family's sergeant-at-arms, watching over Charlie's arsenal of weapons. DiCarlo also, by some reports, had close ties to the process. At least one of the performers taking the stage at Altamont, curiously enough, also had close ties to some of the outlaw biker gangs. As was revealed in his autobiography, Crosby had friends in every Bay Area chapter of the Hells Angels. The death that the concert at Altamont will always be remembered for is that of Meredith Hunter the young man who was stabbed to death by members of the Hells Angels right in front of the stage while the band, in this case the Rolling Stones, played on. The song they were playing, contrary to most accounts of the incident, was the process-inspired Sympathy for the Devil, as was initially reported in Rolling Stone, based on the accounts of several reporters on the scene and a review of the unedited film stock. Most accounts claim that Hunter was killed while the band performed Under My Thumb, but all such claims appear to be based on the mainstream snuff film Gimme Shelter, in which the killing was deliberately presented out of sequence. In the absence of any alternative filmic versions of Hunter's death, the Maisel Brothers film became the default official orthodoxy. Not well known is that someone went to great lengths to ensure that there would be only one available version of the events. As Rolling Stone reported shortly after the concert, one weird Altamont story has to do with a young Berkeley filmmaker who claims to have gotten 8mm footage of the killing. He got home from the affair Saturday and began telling his friends about his amazing film. His house was knocked over the next night, completely rifled. The thief took only his film, nothing else. Contrary to the impression created by Gimme Shelter, Hunter was killed not long into the stone set.
But as the film's editor, Charlotte Zorin, explained to Salon.com some 30 years later, the climax of the movie always has to come at the end. We're talking about the structure of a film. And what kind of concert film are you going to be able to have after somebody has been murdered in front of the stage? Hanging around for another hour would have been really wrong in terms of the film. What wasn't wrong, apparently, was deliberately altering the sequence of events in what was ostensibly a documentary film. One of the young cameramen working for the Maisel brothers that day, as it turns out, was a guy by the name of George Lucas. It is unclear whether it was Lucas who captured the conveniently unobstructed footage of the murder. Not long after, Lucas would begin a meteoric rise to the very top of the Hollywood food chain. He would be joined there by another film director by the name of Steven Spielberg. The two of them would emerge as arguably the most critically acclaimed and influential filmmakers of their generation. Just as the second wave of Laurel Canyon bands, with names like the Eagles and CSN, would transform the music industry from a community of artists into a vast money-making machine, ushering in the era of stadium concerts, multi-million selling albums, and unprecedented profits, Spielberg and Lucas would perform a similar trick with the film business, producing blockbusters like E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, and Star Wars. It seems perfectly natural, then, that in the mid to late 1960s, USC film student Spielberg was living on Lookout Mountain in Laurel Canyon. Many of the accounts of the tragedy at Altamont include the dubious claim that Hunter can unmistakably be seen drawing a gun just before being jumped and killed by the angels. Some accounts even have Hunter firing the alleged gun. What can certainly be fairly clearly seen is the large knife being brought down into Hunter's back. But the footage is ambiguous at best as far as Hunter allegedly brandishing a gun. The angel who was charged with the murder and then ultimately acquitted, Alan David Pissarro, was found floating face down in a reservoir in March of 1985 with $10,000 in his pocket. Despite a widespread belief to the contrary, Pissarro's acquittal was not based on the jury having been convinced that Hunter had drawn a gun, but rather on the fact that the knife wounds that killed Hunter were apparently upstrokes, which meant that they were not the wounds inflicted on camera by Pissarro. Someone else continued to stab Hunter after he was down, and it was those wounds, which the cameras didn't clearly record, that killed him. About one year after Altamont, otherwise obscure singer-songwriter Don McLean penned the lyrics to what was destined to become one of the most iconic songs in the annals of popular music, American Pie. Those lyrics are essentially a chronological recitation of various tragedies that shaped the world of popular music. Not long after a reference to the August 1969 Manson murders and their connection to the Laurel Canyon music scene, and just before a reference to the October 1970 death of Janis Joplin, can be found the following verse in which McLean characterized the death of Hunter as a ritualized murder with Mick Jagger in the role of Satan. 
And there we were, all in one place, a generation lost in space, with no time left to start again. So come on, Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, Jack Flash sat on a candlestick, cause fire is the devil's only friend. Oh, and as I watched him on the stage, my hands were clenched in fists of rage. No angel born in hell could break that Satan's spell. And as the flames climbed high into the night to light the sacrificial rite, I saw Satan laughing with delight the day the music died. As was the custom with big events in the mid to late 1960s, particularly in the Northern California area, Altamont was drenched in acid. And as was also the custom at that time, that acid was provided free of charge by Mr. Augustus Owsley Stanley III, also known as the Bear. At the so-called Human Bee Inn, staged in January of 1967, for example, Owsley had kindly distributed 10,000 tabs of potent LSD. For the Monterey Pop Festival just five months later, he had cooked up and distributed 14,000 tabs. For Altamont, he did likewise. Also present that day, and featured in the Maisel Brothers film gyrating atop a raised platform near the stage, was the king of the freaks himself, Vito Palikas. Along with Mick and the boys, Graham Parsons made a hasty exit from the chaos at Altamont via the Stones' private helicopter. The next year, his flying Burrito Brothers released their second album, Burrito Deluxe, which was produced by Jim Dixon, the man who had played such a pivotal role in shaping Laurel Canyon's first band, The Birds. By June, Parsons had been booted out of the band, reportedly due to chronic alcohol and drug abuse. He quickly signed with A&M Records and was partnered with Terry Melcher. Graham soon became a regular visitor to Melcher's Benedict Canyon home, where the self-destructive pair worked on songs together, with Graham on guitar and Melcher on piano. John Phillips became a close associate of Parsons at that time as well. Meanwhile, Sister Avis had been institutionalized back in New Orleans. She had gotten pregnant, after which Bob Parsons had moved quickly to have her committed and to have her marriage annulled. Little Avis reached out repeatedly to Big Brother Graham for help, but got none. In late October of 1970, Graham went to A&M and signed out the master tapes of ten songs that he had recorded with Melcher. Those tapes were never seen or heard again as seems to happen from time to time with recordings made with Melcher. During roughly that same period of time, Parsons was busted with a briefcase full of prescription drugs. As would be expected, however, the charges were quietly dropped, and Graham walked away unscathed. In 1971, Graham married Gretchen Burrell. A lavish affair was held, curiously enough, at the New Orleans home of stepdad Bob Parsons, a fact that has left Graham chroniclers somewhat puzzled. Bob Parsons was, after all, the man who had, at least in the eyes of many family members, terrorized and institutionalized Graham's younger sister, carried on a scandalous affair with the family's babysitter, murdered Graham's mother, and subsequently married that babysitter, and repeatedly looted the family coffers. 
And yet it was Bob Parsons, of all people, who Graham trusted to host his wedding, suggesting a bond between the two that would seem to defy conventional explanations. That same year, Graham spent some time in France, hanging out once again with the Rolling Stones. The following year, he was signed to reprise records by Mo Austin, and he and Gretchen moved back into the Chateau Marmont, where Graham and Emmy Lou Harris who had been raised on various military bases in Virginia, began working on the songs that would make up his first solo album. In 1973, with that first solo album, entitled simply GP, due for release, Graham and Gretchen finally moved out of the Chateau Marmont and found a cozy brown wood-shingled house on Laurel Canyon Boulevard, which wound its way north from Hollywood through the star's favorite canyon as recounted by Fong Doris. Together again with Emmy Lou, Graham began working on tracks for what would be his posthumously released second solo album, Grievous Angel. But as July of 1973 rolled around, a series of tragedies befell Parsons and the people around him. In July of the previous year, Graham's friend Brandon DeWild, who had introduced Graham to Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, Bruce Dern, and Jack Nicholson, resulting in Graham's involvement in The Trip, had been killed in a traffic accident. A year later, on July 15, 1973, Graham's friend and fellow musician, Clarence White, was hit by a car and killed. According to Fong Torres, around the same time that Clarence White was killed, Sid Kaiser, a familiar face in the Los Angeles rock scene, a close friend of Graham's and, not so incidentally, a source of high-quality drugs, died of a heart attack. Just after those two deaths, in late July 1973, Graham's house in Laurel Canyon burned down. Other sources for the record have placed that house in Topanga Canyon rather than Laurel Canyon. Whatever the case, Graham was home when the house caught fire and he was briefly hospitalized for smoke inhalation. Having lost their home and all their possessions, Graham and Gretchen moved into Gretchen's father's spacious home on Mulholland Drive in Laurel Canyon. Graham wouldn't live in the Burrell estate long, though. On September 19, 1973, Ingram Cecil Connor III died in a nondescript room at the Joshua Tree Inn. His death is usually attributed to a drug overdose, but toxicology reports suggest otherwise. Parsons' death received minimal press coverage, partly because, as fate would have it, singer-songwriter Jim Croce went down in a blaze of glory the very next day, on September 20, 1973. But though the media had moved on, the Graham Parsons story wasn't quite over yet. Parsons had been a regular visitor to Joshua Tree National Park, where one of his favorite pastimes was said to be ingesting hallucinogenic drugs and then searching for UFOs. Sometimes he would take friends like Keith Richards along with him to help with the search. In September of 1973, Graham was accompanied to Joshua Tree by his personal assistant, Michael Martin, Martin's girlfriend, Dale McElroy, and Parsons' former high school sweetheart, Margaret Fisher. As the story goes, the group soon ran out of pot and quickly dispatched Martin back to L.A. to pick up a fresh supply. He was therefore officially not there at the time of Graham's death, 
though why he hadn't returned has never been explained, especially given that his job was specifically to keep an eye on Graham and monitor his drug intake. How Graham Parsons died is anyone's guess. There are as many versions of the event as there were witnesses to it. Actually, that's not quite true. There are more versions than there were witnesses, because some of those witnesses have told more than one story. Officially, Parsons died of an overdose, but forensic testing revealed no morphine or barbiturates in his blood. Morphine showed up in his liver and urine, but as experts have noted, those toxicology results indicate chronic, but not recent, use. Police seem to have had little interest in getting at the truth and made no apparent effort to reconcile the various conflicting accounts. Details of the incident, such as how long Graham had been left alone, whether he was still alive when discovered, who made that discovery, etc., were wildly inconsistent in the accounts of Fisher, McElroy, and Frank and Alan Barbary, the inn's owner and his son. The Barbary's accounts conflicted both with each other and with the girls' accounts. At the hospital, police spoke briefly with the two girls and then released them. Within two hours, Phil Kaufman was on the scene to pick up Fisher and McElroy. Bypassing the police and the hospital, Kaufman went directly to the inn, which the girls had returned to, and quickly hustled them straight back to L.A. Police never spoke to either of the women again, despite the conflicting accounts and the open question of what exactly it was that killed Graham. On the autumnal equinox of 1973, Kaufman and Martin, driving a dilapidated hearse provided by McElroy, arrived at LAX to claim the body of Graham Parsons. If this story is to be believed, then nobody, including the police officer who was nearby, found it at all unusual that two drunken, disheveled men in an obviously out-of-service hearse it had no license plates and several broken windows, had arrived without any paperwork to claim the body of a deceased celebrity. In fact, according to Kaufman's dubious account, the cop even helped the pair load the casket into the hearse and then looked the other way when Martin slammed the hearse into a wall on the way out of the hangar. Kaufman and Martin then drove the body back out to Joshua Tree, doused it with gasoline, and set it ablaze. Local police initially speculated that the cremation was ritualistic, which indeed it was, but such reports were and continue to be scoffed at. On September 26, LAPD detectives, led by anchorman Larry Burrell, came knocking on Kaufman's door with warrants to serve. Bizarrely enough, director Arthur Penn was there with a full crew shooting scenes for the film Night Moves with star Gene Hackman. When you are a friend of Charlie Manson's, it would appear everyone in Hollywood wants to hang out with you. While the crew continued working, Kaufman was taken in by police, but he was back just a few hours later. In the end, he and Martin were fined $300 each, plus reimbursement for the cost of the coffin. In January 1974, four months after Parsons' death, Grievous Angel was released to critical acclaim and public indifference. Later that year, Graham's adoptive father, Bob Parsons, 
died from complications of an alcohol-related illness. He had apparently been making moves aimed at gaining control of the deceased musician's estate. By sheer coincidence, no doubt, the deaths of Graham and Bob Parsons were followed by the 1974 bankruptcy of much of the Snively family business. Around that same time, Little Avis gave birth to daughter Flora. Sixteen years later, both were killed in a boating accident in Virginia. Avis had made it all the way to age 40. Chapter 17, The Lost Expedition of Gene Clark. In the later years toward the end, he would have really bad nightmares. He would wake up in the middle of the night, screaming. Kai Clark, Gene Clark's son. In many ways, the Gene Clark story reads a lot like the Graham Parsons story. Both were considered by their peers to be among Laurel Canyon's brightest stars, yet both are now largely forgotten. Most of their lives were cut tragically short, though Clark lived considerably longer than Parsons. Both of their deaths were overshadowed to some extent by unusual events that occurred just after their passing. Both were considered pioneers of the country rock genre. Both played for a time with the birds. Both recorded duets with Emmylou Harris, and both employed many of the same musicians on their various solo projects. Both had legions of female admirers. Both had a keen interest in UFOs and believed in alien visitations. And both were notorious drug and alcohol abusers. Harold Eugene Clark was born on November 17, 1944, in Tipton, Missouri, though the year of his birth was frequently reported as 1941. It seems quite likely that Gene Clark himself was the source of that erroneous biographical detail to avoid questions about the fact that his alleged father was actually overseas for all of 1944. Tipton is a small town, the kind of town where everyone knows one another by name. In fact, Tipton is kind of like a big park where the same oversized family reunion is held every day of the year. As Bonnie Clark Libel told author John Einerson, when I was in Tipton, Missouri, the year my grandfather died in 1954, I found out I was related to almost everyone in the community. Everyone had married people they knew through the various families like Faraday and Summerhauser. I couldn't throw a stone without hitting a family member. Tipton was founded by Mr. William Tipton Seeley, a rather wealthy and influential gent who opened a general store circa 1830. A community soon sprang up around his store, as tended to happen in those days, and Seeley named his new little fiefdom Round Hill. A decade or so later, in the 1840s, a group of German immigrant families arrived in the area. The Neufers, the Lutzes, the Camericks, the Schmitz, the Hohns, the Schrecks, and the Summerhausers. Those families proceeded to intermarry to a rather extreme degree. In the 1850s, Seeley lobbied hard to have both the Pacific Railroad and the Butterfield Overland Mail Route pass through his little kingdom. Those efforts proved successful, though the railroad was routed a few miles north of Round Hill. Around that new railroad station was born Seeley's second town, Tiny Tipton, 
where Gene Clark would spend the early years of his life. Meanwhile, just before 1800, a group of Irish families led by Mr. Edmund Faraday settled in southwestern Illinois. In addition to the Faradays, the group included the Whelans, the O'Haras, and the O'Neills. These families also proceeded to intermarry. Some factions of the family eventually crossed over the border into Perryville, Missouri, where they became slave owners. James and Helena Faraday split from the rest of the Missouri herd and moved to Cole Camp, not too far southwest of Tipton. According to chronicler Einerson, the move was recommended by a priest who feared too much inbreeding among the families. Oscar Faraday, Gene Clark's maternal grandfather, was born and raised near Tipton, as was the woman who was to be his wife and Gene's grandmother, Rosemary Summerhauser. Before long, the Faradays and the Summerhausers were intermarrying at a furious pace. According to Bonnie Clark, the Faraday and Summerhauser families had double cousins going on. On the summer solstice of 1920, Rosemary Summerhauser Faraday gave birth to Mary Jean Faraday, Jean Clark's mother. After completing elementary school, Mary Jean was sent away to work as a domestic servant for an unnamed wealthy family living near Kansas City, Kansas. The Depression years were pretty rough, from what I hear, but selling off your barely teenage daughter seems a bit harsh. The other half of Gene Clark's family tree is, curiously enough, shrouded in mystery and secrecy. As chronicler Einerson notes, Unlike Gene Faraday Clark's well-documented family history, the lineage of Gene's father, Kelly George Clark, is far more murky and mysterious. Indeed, Einerson's extensive research turned up little more than the fact that Kelly Clark was born on November 11, 1918, in Lenexa, Kansas, and that according to family lore, there might be Native American blood in the family tree that has been concealed. Or maybe Pop Clark's history is murky for other reasons. What is known is that Kelly Clark apparently quit high school and went to work for the Parks Department as a groundskeeper. While tending the grounds at the Milburn Country Club, he met young Jean Faraday, who apparently was taken there fairly frequently by her employers. Because most wealthy people, it seems reasonable to conclude, take their young servants with them to the country club. After a relatively brief courtship, the two married on May 29, 1941, and promptly started a family. Bonnie Clark was born on March 13, 1942, just over nine months after the couple exchanged vows. Kelly Catherine was to be the couple's second child, but she was, alas, reportedly stillborn on the summer solstice of 1943. Nothing suspicious about that nor about the peculiar fact that while Jean and other members of the family would be laid to rest in the Summerhauser family plot at St. Andrew's Cemetery in Tipton, Kelly Catherine's is a solitary stone at the far south end of the cemetery, as recounted by John Einerson in Mr. Tambourine Man. A few months after Kelly Catherine Clark's curious death, Kelly George Clark was called up for radio and gunnery school. Following training, he was assigned to a unit that served as General George Patton's mop-up crew. Clark's team landed at Le Havre, France, and steadily made their way towards Germany. 
By May of 1945, immediately following the fall of the Third Reich, Clark was in Berlin. Meanwhile, the third Clark child, Jean, was born in November 1944. Officially, Jean Clark was impregnated while her husband was briefly home on leave, presumably in February 1944, though it seems very unlikely that he would have been at home at that time. In any event, Jean spent the first years of his life in a house at 304 Morgan Street, directly across the street from a funeral home. Kelly Clark returned home at the end of World War II and promptly impregnated his wife once again. Nancy Patricia Clark was born on July 19, 1946. The family would continue to grow until there were no fewer than 10 Clark siblings, all living in a tiny house far off the beaten path. As a former classmate and friend told Einerson, you had to take a dirt road up, and it was the only house back in the woods, way up high. I couldn't believe the first time Jean took me there. It was kind of spooky in a way. As Sister Bonnie has acknowledged, the Clarks were known as a very strange family in the community. That may have had something to do with the family's rather unusual choices of recreational activities, such as throwing knives at laundry detergent boxes. Jean was very good at it. We both were. This was one of the things we did as a family function, noted Bonnie. Jean would have a lifelong fascination with knives and guns. According to friend Joe Larson, after Clark began making money with the birds, he started buying guns. In the cover photo for one of Jean's solo albums, he is sitting on a picnic table. As brother Rick Clark has noted, there are bullet holes in the table where we would shoot at cans and bottles from the back porch with Jean's guns. One of those guns was an antique rifle given to Jean by fellow gun aficionado David Crosby. Apparently, a lot of those peacenik hippie types in Laurel Canyon were packing heat. Shockingly enough, most of the members of that strange family living in the backwoods did not fare so well as they grew into adulthood. As of the time of the writing of Einerson's Mr. Tambourine Man, 2005, one Clark sibling had been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Another suffered from severe bouts of clinical depression. Another was homeless due to untreated mental illness. Another was on psychiatric meds most of her life before dying suddenly in 1987. Another was bipolar and yet another was diagnosed with severe mental retardation. Even more shockingly, mysterious father Kelly Clark was said to be a raging alcoholic who suffered from severe mood swings. Jean's formal education began in 1949 at a strict Catholic school in Raytown. According to big sister Bonnie, quoted by Einerson, there was truly some abusive people there. I can remember some of those nuns being real nightmares. By 1960, the family had moved to Bonner Springs, Kansas, where Gene attended high school. He was known to hang with a rough crowd during his high school days, and a few of his buddies from those years ended up serving prison time. On August 12, 1963, Gene Clark, still a few months shy of his 19th birthday, was inexplicably offered a spot in the new Christy Minstrel's vocal group. He was on a plane to California the very next day. 
The minstrels were a very busy touring group, averaging some 300 dates a year. So Gene would spend a lot of time on airplanes during his six-month tenure as a minstrel. Curiously, though, fear of flying would be cited a couple years later as Gene's reason for leaving the birds. One of the gigs the group played on January 14, 1964, was at the White House as special guests of Lyndon Johnson, who had taken office less than two months earlier following the assassination of John Kennedy. After the performance, Gene and other minstrels, including Barry McGuire, who, as we discussed previously, released Eve of Destruction a couple years later, went out on the town and partied with Johnson's two daughters, Linda Bird and Lucy Baines, who were just 19 and 16 at the time. As the story goes, Gene quit the new Christie minstrels a couple of weeks later, in February of 1964, after hearing the first album released by an upstart British band known as The Beatles. Clark immediately headed out to Los Angeles, as would so many others, where he regularly hung out at the Troubadour, just off the Sunset Strip. It was there that he met one James Joseph McGinn III, who had, curiously enough, once been in the new Christie Minstrels himself, for exactly one day. The two quickly formed a folk duo and began writing songs, hoping to soon get bookings at the Troubadour and other local clubs. But according to McGinn, the pair never got to the stage of performing as a duo. Crosby came along quite quickly. McGinn was initially quite wary of the interloper, but the three nevertheless became a trio known at first as the Jet Set. With Crosby, of course, came Jim Dixon, who would transform the trio into the birds. According to Vern Gosden, who along with his brother Rex played with many of the Laurel Canyon musicians, it was Jim Dixon who put the birds together, you might say. If I'm telling the truth, this is what I think. I don't think the birds had any ideas whatsoever, and Jim Dixon put it all together for them. Dixon originally envisioned the band as a Beatlesque quartet, with Gene as John, lead vocalist, rhythm guitarist, Roger as George, lead guitar and vocals, and Crosby as Paul, bass and vocals. This arrangement proved unworkable, however, since Crosby was reportedly unable to sing and play bass at the same time. This then led Dixon to recruit mandolin player Chris Hillman to take over bass duties, leaving Crosby with little to do other than provide harmony vocals. That didn't sit well with Lord Crosby, so he began a relentless campaign aimed at eroding Gene's confidence in his own guitar-playing ability. Crosby's constant ridicule paid off, and he soon enough took over rhythm guitar duties. The five-man band was then complete. Gene would provide most lead vocals and bang the tambourine. Jim, Roger McGinn, would provide the band's signature 12-string guitar sound and harmony vocals. Crosby would provide serviceable, at best, rhythm guitar work and harmony vocals. And Chris Hillman and Michael Clark would pretend, initially at least, to play the bass guitar and the drums. The band released its first single as the Beefeaters. The record was produced by Jim Dixon, who would go on to guide the bird's career, and Paul Rothschild, who would go on to guide the Doors' career. 
The single, released by Elektra Records, went nowhere. By November of 1964, though, the band, renamed The Birds, was signed with Columbia Records. Just two months later, they would record Mr. Tambourine Man and become huge stars. But there was a hurdle to overcome first. As Einerson notes, Gene had received his draft notice. Roger and Michael had already dodged that bullet. Now it was Gene's turn. Not to worry, though. Gene was able to dodge that bullet as well. According to Einerson, Gene was deemed unfit for military service due to an old football disease identified as Osgood Schlatter's disease. Luckily for Gene, it apparently didn't prevent him from playing football, but it did keep him out of the service. Gene Clark was without question an astoundingly prolific songwriter. Relatively few of his compositions, however, appeared on Bird's albums, which instead featured a lot of covers. The truth is that Gene had more than enough songs, and reportedly good songs, to fill the early Bird's albums. Even Crosby has acknowledged that Clark was prolific. He would show up every week with new songs, and they were great songs. Crosby wasn't so generous, though, with his assessments of Gene's talents back in the day. According to most accounts, it was the jealousy of Crosby and McGinn that kept Gene's tracks off the records. In those days, there wasn't a lot of money to be made by performing and recording music. The real money was in song royalties, so Clark was paid considerably more than the rest of the band. As McGinn put it, Gene was into Ferraris, and we were still starving. That disproportionate compensation quickly drove a wedge between Clark and the other two-thirds of the original trio. At times, Gene even shared writing credits on his songs just to get them onto albums. The classic Eight Miles High, for example, was written by Gene, but credited to Crosby and McGinn as well. As has been noted previously, Vito Pelikas played a key role in launching the careers of the birds, and so it is that we find references to Vito and his entourage in Einerson's telling of the Gene Clark story. Vito and Carl were legendary hipsters on the L.A. scene and were into LSD long before anyone else. It was at their studio that Gene believed the birds truly found their magic as a group. According to Morgan Cavett, the son of Oscar-winning screenwriter Frank Cavett, they had this group of hippies before that term came into use. Somehow they had hooked up with the birds. When the big band launched its very first... ...1965, along for the trip were L.A. scene makers Vito and Carl and their entourage of crazed hippie dancers whose uninhibited gyrations caused quite a stir in the heartlands of America. Einerson's account, though, is not quite accurate. Vito stayed home, while First Lieutenant Carl Franzoni led the faction of the troop that hit the road with the birds. Assisting Franzoni was birds roadie Brian McLean, who shortly thereafter would beat out Mansonite Bobby Beausoleil for the rhythm guitarist position in Love. As troop dancer Lizzie Donahue would later recall, many of those in America's hinterlands thought they were from outer space. 
in Paris, Illinois, they actually threw us off the dance floor. Gene Clark would later remember that the band could have played out of tune all day. Nobody ever heard us anyway. According to many accounts, the band oftentimes did play out of tune all day, and all night as well. When the band followed up its first national tour with a tour of the UK, the birds were not well received. Often, the band would spend more time tuning their instruments between songs than they did actually playing those songs. And by most accounts, the boys made virtually no attempt to forge a connection with the audience. Gene did, though, forge a bond with the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones, whose life would be tragically cut short a couple years later. Sometime after that tour, members of the Birds famously met with members of the Beatles, and they all dropped acid together. Some accounts hold that that meeting took place in the Cielo Drive home, where Sharon Tate would later be butchered. But it appears to have actually taken place at another home in Benedict Canyon, one that may have been formerly owned by Zsa Zsa Gabor. Laurel Canyon stalwart Peter Fonda was reportedly in attendance, and legend holds that it was he who supplied a very high John Lennon with the line, I know what it's like to be dead. In March of 1966, a press release announced Gene Clark's departure from the birds. McGinn has alleged that Dixon and co-manager Eddie Ticknor encouraged Gene to split from the band so that they could exploit his solo potential. If so, then they must have been greatly disappointed, since Clark never came close to living up to that potential. One of the first offers Gene received upon his departure from the Birds was from drummer Dewey Martin, who invited Clark to join the newly formed Buffalo Springfield. Clark declined, choosing to form his own band, the first of which was dubbed The Group. As Einerson explains, six weeks after rehearsals began, Gene Clark and the group debuted at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go on June 22 for a two-week stand on the heels of a dazzling six-week stint by new group Buffalo Springfield. Around that same time, Clark began having an affair with Michelle Phillips, who lived with hubby John Phillips just a couple of blocks down the canyon. Following what were reportedly unproductive recording sessions, Gene's first post-Birds formation broke up. On July 10, he was signed as a solo artist, and he entered the studio the next month, accompanied by doomed guitarist Clarence White, Brian Wilson collaborator Van Dyke Parks, our old friend Glenn Campbell, the ubiquitous Chris Hillman, and Vern and Rex Gosden who had gotten their start alongside Chris Hillman in the formation known as the Hillmen. In January of 1967, Clark's first solo album was released as Gene Clark with the Gosden Brothers. Like many of the other records we have stumbled upon while on this journey, some fans and critics regard the record as the first country rock album, released a year and a half before the country rock forays by The Birds and Buffalo Springfield. The album, unfortunately, was quickly overshadowed by The Birds' own Younger Than Yesterday, which Columbia released just two weeks after releasing Gene's solo effort. By March of 1967, Clark had put together a new version of the group, 
which debuted at the Whiskey with Clark, Clarence White, and two members of the Mamas and the Papas touring group, whom Gene had met through his paramour, Michelle Phillips. At the tail end of 1967, Gene briefly rejoined the Birds, replacing the fired David Crosby. The reunion lasted only a few weeks, but it was long enough for Gene to contribute to The Notorious Bird Brothers, released in January 1968. When Gene left the Birds, it should be noted, he had done so empty-handed. Not so with Crosby, who was given a substantial settlement upon his departure. He used that money to purchase a yacht, which he dubbed the Mayan. Crosby thereafter was known to spend extended periods of time aboard the Mayan, sailing to and from various locations. He was not the only Canyon musician to own and operate such a vessel. John Phillips had one as well, as did Dennis Wilson. All three of them also had a passion for controlled substances. And guns. Perhaps there is some connection there. Following his brief reunion with the Birds, Clark composed the original score for Marijuana, a short anti-drug film hosted by Sonny Bono. His next project, dubbed The Fantastic Expedition of Dillard and Clark, featured Gene Doug Dillard, formerly of the Dillards, from whom Buffalo Springfield, it will be recalled, had obtained their instruments, Bernie Leadon, who had been a peripheral member of San Diego's Scottsville Squirrel Barkers alongside Chris Hillman, and, of course, Chris Hillman. By that time, Gene had married, and his wife, Carly, was an avid reader of occult literature, particularly, as she recalled, this lady named Madame Blavatsky. Circa 1971, Clark was approached by his friend and fellow Canyonite Dennis Hopper to compose songs for the soundtrack to Hopper's American Dreamer. Around that same time, according to Einerson, Gene's running buddies included David Carradine and John Barrymore. That was, to say the least, a rather curious group of friends. According to authors such as Craig Heimbickner, Martin P. Starr, and John Carter, Dennis Hopper and John Carradine, David's dad, were both members of the infamous Agape Lodge of the OTO, alongside doomed rocket scientist Jack Parsons, actor Dean Stockwell, and doppelgangers L. Ron Hubbard and Robert Heinlein. According to Gregory Mank, writing in Hollywood's Hellfire Club, John Carradine and John Barrymore were also members of the so-called Bundy Drive Boys, a group that engaged in such practices as incest, rape, and cannibalism. And according to Ed Sanders, among the upscale homes visited by a process work group was the John Barrymore Mansion, located at 1301 Summit Ridge Drive. The year 1972 saw yet another brief Birds reunion, with another record released, this one in February of 1973. Gene next began recording sessions for a new solo project financed by his friend Gary Legan, the husband of porn star and ivory soap model Marilyn Chambers. Joining Gene on some of the tracks was Emmy Lou Harris, whose hubby Tom Slocum, a descendant of famed explorer Joshua Slocum, was a member of Gene's inner circle. After briefly relocating to Albion, California with his wife and kids, Clark moved back to Laurel Canyon, where he moved into a home on Stanley Hills Drive with his new girlfriend, Terry Messina. Born into considerable wealth, 
Messina was the daughter of a prominent area physician. In 1963, she had enrolled in theater arts at UCLA, which quite likely would have placed her in the company of a couple of other UCLA theater arts students named Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek. Terry and Jean moved in together in the summer of 1977. According to Einerson, Messina laterally worked in film editing, but she was better known in exclusive circles as a supplier of cocaine and heroin. As has been previously discussed, during that time period, the entire Laurel Canyon lifestyle revolved around cocaine, and Jean fell into line, becoming a legendary partier. Canyon resident Ken Mansfield recalled those dark years. That particular point in my life, and most of us, was the craziest time of all, when we were all into drugs the most. Tommy Kay's house was one of the houses we hung out at a lot. David Carradine was my neighbor in Laurel Canyon. Our two properties were side by side. David had a group called Water. I could tell you some wild canyon stories. Looking back, it's not a nice memory. Even though we thought we were having a good time, I don't think we really were. Shortly after Tommy Kay's little girl, Eloise, died in an unfortunate accident, it just seemed like everybody's life got dark, and we all kind of lost hope there for a while. Kids living in Laurel Canyon apparently had to be particularly vigilant about avoiding tragic accidents. Circa 1978, Clark teamed with former bandmates Hillman and McGinn for a contrived reunion tour. An album followed in early 1979, with a second released in early 1980. During that time, according to brother David Clark, Gene was hanging around with these really gross characters who were just a bunch of burnouts, and he wasn't much better. Kathy Evelyn Smith was there. Not long after, Smith would attain a certain amount of notoriety for her involvement in the curious death of John Belushi at the Chateau Marmont. We should then, I suppose, add John Belushi to the Laurel Canyon death list, and Eloise Kay as well. Following the release of the second Birds reunion album, Clark and a close friend, guitarist Jesse Ed Davis, left L.A. for Oahu, Hawaii, supposedly to get clean. They returned at the end of 1981, with Gene once again settling into his favorite canyon. Among his close friends at the time were former child star Kurt Russell and his then-wife, actress Susan Hubley, who had also taken up residence in Laurel Canyon. Gene's solo career sputtered on for another decade, though fewer and fewer people seemed to be paying much attention. In January 1991, the original members of the Birds came together for their induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Clark died just four months later, reportedly of a heart attack. He was just 46 at the time. The circumstances of his death remain murky to this day. As Einerson has noted, what transpired over the last three days of Gene's life remains clouded by controversy. Conspiracy theories abound. Accusations have been leveled. For the most part, though, Gene has now been all but forgotten. His vast stockpile of unreleased material, however, much of which mysteriously disappeared after his death, likely lives on, albeit credited to others. 
According to Einerson, Clark had been fighting to stay sober, but it is agreed that he began drinking again on the evening of Wednesday, May 22. What happened next depends entirely on who is telling the story. One witness claims he searched the house for drugs and did not find any, contrary to claims by others that drugs and drug paraphernalia were present in the house. There are those conspiracy theorists who continue to insinuate that drugs and certain characters were indeed present that night, and that Gene's death was a result of misadventure, necessitating a panicked cleanup campaign that morning. There were apparently numerous people present at Clark's home on the morning of May 24, 1991, as Gene lay dead on the living room floor. One of those people was Saul Davis, who took it upon himself to contact the media with the news, another bone of contention with some, given that Saul was not serving as Gene's manager at the time. Another was the manager of the property, identified as Ray Barry, who had served during World War II in special ops. While people milled about the house, arguing over the spoils, Gene's body continued to lie on the living room floor, face up. Days later, David Carradine caused quite a stir at Gene's open casket memorial service. Former bandmate Pat Robinson remembered it well. When Carradine came up, he wasn't as much drunk as he was on acid, I think, and his girlfriend and business manager at the time was there with him. And we're standing there, and Carradine says, You cocksucker, and grabs Gene by the lapels. When you pull somebody up from a coffin and they have nothing inside for guts, they bend higher up. It was really shocking to see that. And Carradine goes, You pissed on my daughter when she was 13. And he said it pretty loud. And then he says, I saw him snicker, boys. <laughs> oh, man, that was weird. Perhaps weirder still is that many of those who were in attendance remember hearing something a little different. You fucked my daughter when she was 13. Maybe Carradine had mistaken Clark for Roman Polanski, or maybe that's just what everyone was doing in Laurel Canyon. In any event, none of the original members of the Birds bothered to attend the service. Afterwards, Gene was laid to rest in tiny Tipton. It should be noted here, before concluding this chapter, that there were very clear indications that Gene Clark suffered from a rather severe dissociative disorder throughout his adult life. As far as can be determined from the literature, he was never diagnosed as such, but comments made by his bandmates and family members are quite revealing. One such bandmate, Pat Robinson, has described how Clark used to slip into these dream states, which I thought was really amazing. He'd go into these dream states and lay down on the couch and go, I'll be right back, Patrick. Another, John York, has said that Gene had these multiple personalities. Yet another, Bernie Leadon, remembered that Clark would often appear to be completely out of it, and he'd say, Hey, Gene, what are you thinking? And he would go, Huh? Oh, like he was being brought back to reality. Gene's sister, Bonnie Clark, has also noted that there was more than one version of the troubled singer-songwriter. There was this persona, and the rest of Gene was somewhere in there. He was hard to get to know. He could be very warm and loving, but that could change in a heartbeat. 
Chronicler John Einerson offered the following summation. It is often difficult for those who knew him, even family members, to reconcile the two Gene Clarks, the cheerful, engaging, yet shy loner with the vibrant imagination, and the frustrated, moody recluse who was sometimes prone to violence. Chapter 18, The Wolf King of L.A., Papa John Phillips. John Phillips was the ultimate controller. Mamas and the Papas producer manager, Lou Adler. She was practically his slave. Michelle Phillips, describing John's relationship with his third wife, Genevieve Waite. Thus far in this journey, we have seen how what are arguably the two most bloody and notorious mass murders in the history of the City of Angels, the murders of the occupants of the home on Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, and the so-called four-on-the-floor bludgeoning murders of four drug dealers on Wonderland Avenue were directly connected to the Laurel Canyon music scene. But the city of Los Angeles can boast of one other particularly notorious murder, one that stands to this day as both the most gruesome single-victim murder and the most famous unsolved mystery in the city's history. On January 15, 1947, the mutilated body of aspiring actress Elizabeth Short was found posed in a field. The ritualistically butchered body was nude, sliced cleanly in half, and completely drained of blood. Parts of the body had been removed, after which the corpse had been thoroughly sanitized. Bruising clearly indicated that the young girl had been savagely beaten. Forensic evidence suggested that she had been forced to eat feces during her tortuous ordeal. She was quickly dubbed the Black Dahlia, and it is by that name that she is known and written about today. Much of what has been written about the brief life of Ms. Short is contradictory. Among the facts that seem to be agreed upon are that she had recently worked at a military facility that is now known as Vandenberg Air Force Base, and that she had some kind of close connection to a U.S. Naval Hospital in San Diego, where she may have also worked. That is, in any event, what she had indicated in a letter to her mother. Unlike the Manson and Wonderland murders, the mutilation of the Black Dahlia occurred some 20 years before Laurel Canyon's glory days. There is, nevertheless, a possible connection. This story begins on August 30, 1935, with the birth of John Edmund Andrew Phillips to parents Claude and Edna Phillips. Claude was a retired Marine Corps officer and engineer. His father, John Andrew Phillips, who had been a prominent and influential architect, one day mysteriously fell to his death on a construction site, according to John Phillips' autobiography. John's mother, Edna, had what most people would consider a decidedly unconventional upbringing. Her mother was a psychic and faith healer, and many of her 11 siblings were well-known locally as gunfighters and bandits. When Edna was just a year old, she was purportedly kidnapped by gypsies. Not to worry, though, her father allegedly found her a year later down in Mexico, though how he would have done so will doubtless forever remain a mystery. Edna was just 15 
when she met and began a relationship with Claude Phillips, who according to legend had supposedly won an Oklahoma bar from a fellow serviceman in a poker game on the way home from France at the close of World War I, which seems in retrospect about as credible as various other aspects of Phillips' family history as told by John. By 18, Edna had given birth to the couple's first child, Rosie Phillips, born on New Year's Eve, 1922. Rosie would later become a career employee of the Pentagon, where John's first wife would also find work. Years later, according to John, Rosie's daughter Patty would be found dead of an overdose in a girlfriend's apartment in North Hollywood. There were mysterious questions surrounding her death. This kind of thing tends to happen to families in Laurel Canyon. In the late 1920s, Claude Phillips was commissioned to Haiti, where he remained for four years. He was then sent back to Quantico, then shipped off to Managua, Nicaragua, before finally returning to Alexandria, Virginia, where John Phillips, who would become arguably the most important music figure in the canyon, grew up and went to school. John attended a series of strict Catholic and military schools. He also served as an altar boy, though according to his own account, he also had a darker side, which included forays into vandalism, auto theft, breaking and entering, fighting, and other assorted mischief. His mother, meanwhile, routinely cruised for men when not spending time with a U.S. Army colonel named George Lacey. John would later be told that his real father was a U.S. Marine Corps doctor named Roland Meeks, who died in a Japanese POW camp during World War II. Phillips played basketball at George Washington High School, graduating in 1953. He then scored an appointment to Annapolis Naval Academy, but soon dropped out. One of his first paying jobs was working on a fishing charter boat. As John later recalled it, the crew consisted of him, a retired Navy officer, and four retired Army generals. Seems like a perfect fit for one of the future guiding lights of the hippie movement. Phillips also, for a brief time, tried his hand at selling cemetery plots. As noted at the beginning of this odyssey, John's first wife was the aristocratic Susie Adams, a direct descendant of President John Adams and an occasional practitioner of voodoo. The couple's first son, Jeffrey, was born on Friday the 13th in December of 1957. Shortly after that, John found himself in, of all places, Havana, Cuba, just as the Batista regime was about to fall to the revolutionary forces of Fidel Castro. According to Phillips, he and his traveling companions were once whisked off the street by a director straight into a TV studio to appear on a live Havana variety show. Many of you, I'm sure, have had a similar experience. Some months later, in 1958, Phillips flew to Los Angeles and began performing on amateur nights at Pandora's Box on the legendary Sunset Strip. His first band, The Journeymen, featured Phillips, Scott McKenzie, and Dick Weissman. It was while touring with this formation that John Phillips met a very young Holly Michelle Gilliam. 
Michelle was born November 10, 1944, in Long Beach, California, to a father variously described as a merchant marine, a movie production assistant, and a self-taught intellectual. When Michelle's mother, a Baptist minister's daughter, reportedly died of a brain aneurysm when Michelle was just five, Gardner Gill Gilliam took his daughters and promptly relocated to Mexico, ostensibly to attend college on the GI Bill. They remained there for several years. Upon their return to Southern California, Gill found work as an L.A. County probation officer, According to John, Gill's work often required him to go out of town, though one would think that that would make it rather difficult for him to keep tabs on his charges. In 1958, while future husband John was vacationing in war-torn Cuba, Michelle found a new mother figure in 23-year-old Tamar Hodel. Tamar's father, Dr. George Hodel, was described by Vanity Fair in December 2007 as the most pathologically decadent man in Los Angeles and the city's venereal disease czar and a fixture in its A-list demimonde. Also noted in the article was that George Hodel shared with Man Ray a love for the work of the Marquis de Sade and the belief that the pursuit of personal liberty was worth everything. In other words, Hodel embraced that all-purpose Luciferian creed, do what thou wilt. According to the same article, Tamar and her siblings had grown up in her father's Hollywood house, which resembled a Mayan temple, was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's son, and was the site of wild parties, in which Hodel was sometimes joined by director John Houston and photographer Man Ray. The luxurious home reportedly features, among other amenities, a subterranean walk-in vault, which is always a nice thing to have around. Within the walls of that singularly odd Hollywood Hills home, which lies about three miles due east of the mouth of Laurel Canyon, Tamar has talked of how she often uncomfortably posed nude for dirty old man, Man Ray, and at once wriggled free from a predatory John Houston. Her own father, not so shockingly, had committed incest with her. When I was 11, my father taught me to perform oral sex on him. Her father also plied her with erotic books, grooming her for what he touted as their transcendent union, and freely shared her with his wealthy and influential friends. To the girl's horror, she became pregnant at the tender age of 14 with her father's child. To her greater horror, she says, my father wanted me to have his baby. A friend, nevertheless, took her to get an abortion. Dr. George was so incensed that, according to Tamar, he struck her on the head with his pistol, prompting her stepmother, who also happened to be John Houston's ex-wife, to assist her in going into hiding. Dr. George Hodel was arrested and charged with, among other things, offering his young daughter to several friends at an orgy. The sensational 1949 incest trial featured a witness who took the stand to describe being hypnotized by Hodel at a party. 
allegations that the rich and powerful were dabbling in incest, hypnotism, pedophilic orgies, and Luciferian philosophies must surely have been shocking to Angelenos in the 1940s, as they would still be to most Americans today. Perhaps that is why the jury chose not to believe Tamar and instead acquitted Dr. Hodel. Of course, it should probably be factored in that Tamar was roundly vilified by both the Jerry Geisler-led defense team and the local press. Far more shocking than the allegations aired at trial was the then-unknown fact that even while Hodel was standing trial on the sensational charges, he was, and still is today, a prime suspect in the Black Dahlia murder case. There have been, to be sure, numerous suspects identified in the case, including actor-director Orson Welles. But George Hodel does seem to be a much more likely suspect than most of those who have been identified. And his possible guilt, it should be noted, does not exclude others from likely complicity as well. The mistake that virtually all investigators of this case have made is assuming that there was only one culprit. It is entirely possible that Hodel committed the crime in conjunction with various others in his Luciferian social circle. Photographer Man Ray, for example, is a compelling suspect given that the posing of Ms. Short's body appeared to mimic the Minotaur, one of his better-known photographs. It seems unlikely that the 14-year-old daughter of a lowly probation officer would fall into the orbit of the daughter of the very wealthy and well-connected George Hodel, but not any more unlikely, I suppose, than numerous other aspects of the Laurel Canyon saga. Tamar, who has been described by Michelle as the epitome of glamour, quickly took the youngster under her wing, buying her clothes, enrolling her in modeling school, teaching her to drive, and providing her with a fake ID and a steady stream of prescription drugs, obtained, one would presume, from her father. According to Michelle, Tamar put on perfect airs around my dad, and when it became necessary, she would sleep with him. That perhaps explains why, in early 1961, Gill didn't have a problem with allowing his underage daughter to move to San Francisco with her surrogate mom. Soon enough, Tamar found herself in a relationship with journeyman Scott McKenzie, and bandmate John Phillips began coming by Tamar in Michelle's room on a nightly basis. It wasn't long before Michelle, still just 16, was romantically involved with 25-year-old Phillips, despite the fact that John was still married to and living with Susie Adams, with whom he by then had two children, Laura Mackenzie Phillips having been born on November 10, 1959, in, naturally enough, Alexandria, Virginia. Father Gill, who had recently taken a 16-year-old bride of his own, one of a string of six wives, still wasn't concerned. And it's probably safe to assume that Philip's father, who had pursued his bride when he was just 15, wouldn't have been too concerned either. In October 1962, a year or so after meeting Michelle, John curiously found himself in Jacksonville, Florida, alongside Naval Air Station Jacksonville and Naval Station Mayport for two weeks of rest and rehearsal that just happened to coincide with the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
For a guy who, in his own words, never felt comfortable with political advocacy, John seems to have had a keen interest in Cuban affairs. Two months later, on New Year's Eve 1962, Holly Michelle Gilliam became John Phillips' second wife. She also joined his reconfigured band, as did Canadian Denny Doherty, who had formerly been with the Mugwumps alongside Cass Elliott. This new lineup was dubbed the New Journeymen. The newly formed trio promptly embarked on a drug-fueled Caribbean adventure, arriving first at St. John's, where John claimed that they snorkeled on acid for several weeks. They next ferried over to St. Thomas, where they set up camp at a dive beachfront boarding house known as Duffy's. Soon enough, Ellen Naomi Cohen, better known as Cass Elliot, showed up with John's nephew, who was a childhood friend of hers. Cass had been born in Baltimore, but had grown up in Alexandria, where, like Phillips, she had attended George Washington High School. As the legend goes, Cass waited tables at the dive while the trio performed folk songs. During their time there, the town was, according to Phillips, crawling with drunken marines and sailors on their way home from Vietnam. Moving on from the boarding house, the group next took over an unfinished home on Creek Alley, where, according to John, they were known as the Island's Open House, and everyone was welcome to our commune. At some point, though, the governor supposedly ordered them off the island because he thought his nephew was doing drugs with the crazies at Creek Alley. The band had formalized its new lineup of John Phillips, Michelle Phillips, Denny Doherty, and Cass Elliott, and they had a whole album's worth of material written. That first album would feature such enduring classics as California Dreamin' and Monday Monday. On none of the band's subsequent albums would they produce anywhere near the level of songwriting that they were somehow able to achieve on that Caribbean adventure. Though isolated on St. Thomas, the songs the group brought back to L.A. with them just happened to be of the previously unheard but soon-to-emerge folk rock variety. In his autobiography, Papa John, Phillips quotes Doherty as saying that everyone was evolving toward the same sound at the same time without really communicating with each other about it. It was, I suppose, just the way things were fated to be. Another one of those amazing serendipities. To be sure, Phillips told a number of different versions of the story of the origins of the songs on that first album. One version had California Dreamin' being written in a New York hotel room in the middle of the night with assistance from Michelle. Another version held that the tune was composed on the drive to L.A. from New York. Yet another version had the song dating back to 1963. Phillips also claimed at times that the song wasn't even written for the Mamas and the Papas, but rather for Barry McGuire, who was a hot commodity following the 1965 release of Eve of Destruction. Within a month of arriving in L.A., the band had a producer-manager, Lou Adler, a Jewish kid who had grown up in a tough Hispanic section of East L.A., and a record deal, and John and Michelle were at home in a comfortable house on Lookout Mountain in Laurel Canyon. 
they would soon be able to afford to purchase Jeanette McDonald's former Bel Air mansion at 783 Bel Air Road, which featured hand-carved wooden gargoyles and a walk-in vault beneath the house, which, as I already mentioned, is a very handy feature. Sitting on five acres, the lavish home with five Rolls Royces in the driveway was the site of virtually non-stop partying. The new lineup, of course, needed a name, and John pushed hard for the occult-based Magic Circle, a name by which the band was briefly known before ultimately settling on the Mamas and the Papas. They proved to be a rather short-lived band, recording and performing only from 1965 to 1968, with a brief reunion in 1971 to satisfy contractual obligations to their record company. During that time, the band produced five albums and 11 top 40 singles. To date, the lineup has sold nearly 100 million albums. The Mamas and the Papas freshman album, If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears, was released in early 1966 and rose to the very top of the charts. It was all downhill from there. While recording their second album in June 1966, Michelle was discharged from the band due to the fact that she was having an affair with Denny Doherty, which was causing severe friction in the group. By August, though, she was back, which didn't prevent the group's second album from performing rather poorly. The third, recorded in 1967 and entitled Deliver, failed to live up to its name. Then, in June of that year, the Mamas and the Papas delivered a closing set at the Monterey Pop Festival that almost everyone agrees was pretty wretched. Two months after Monterey, the band made their final television appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. Two months after that, the quartet headed off to Europe while recording their fourth album, The Papas and the Mamas. Shortly thereafter, the band broke up. John tried his hand at a solo career with the unsuccessful release of John Phillips, The Wolf King of L.A., which bore the logo of his own Warlock Records. To satisfy record label demands, the group then briefly reformed for their fourth album, People Like Us. Following that unsuccessful venture, the band once again dissolved. During the heyday of the Mamas and the Papas, John and Michelle Phillips knew and regularly played host to virtually everyone of importance in the canyons. In addition to all the singers and musicians living in Laurel Canyon, the power couple's circle of friends included Warren Beatty, Peter and Jane Fonda, Jack Nicholson, Terry Melcher and girlfriend Candace Bergen, Marlon Brando, Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frakowski, soon-to-be-dead columnist Steve Brandt, Larry Hagman, presidential brother-in-law Peter Lawford, fresh from his alleged involvement in covering up the murder of Marilyn Monroe, Dennis Hopper, Ryan O'Neill, Mia Farrow, ethereal Freemason Peter Sellers, and Zsa Zsa Gabor, and a short, scraggly singer-songwriter by the name of Charles Manson. There were, to be sure, numerous ties between the Mamas and the Papas and Charles Manson, and between the Mamas and the Papas and the Cielo Drive victims. 
John Phillips, for example, had invested $10,000 in J. Sebring's business venture, Sebring International, which was rumored to have been a front for various illegal activities, including drug trafficking. Michelle Phillips had a brief affair with Roman Polanski in London while Polanski was married to the soon-to-be-murdered Sharon Tate. During the same sojourn to London, Tate was reportedly initiated into the practice of witchcraft. Mama Cass, as previously noted, lived just across the road from the house at 2774 Woodstock Road, occupied by Folger and Frakowski. Both homes were frequently visited by known drug dealers. Regulars at Cass's home included Pick Dawson, also a regular at the Frakowski Folger home and at the Tate Polanski home, the son of a U.S. State Department official who, according to John Phillips, was suspected by authorities of using diplomatic pouches to move drugs between countries, and Billy Doyle a local dealer who Dennis Hopper claimed was filmed while being flogged at the Tate Polanski house just three days before the murders. Another regular was Bill Menzer, later convicted of the brutal murder of Cotton Club producer Roy Radin. The LAPD once described Menzer as a member of some kind of hit squad. So dark was the scene at the home of the Lady of the Canyon that according to journalist Maury Terry, four of the LAPD's initial prime suspects in the Tate killings were drug dealers associated with Cass Elliott. And yet, curiously enough, many of the canyon's peace and love-spewing musicians were regulars at Mama Cass's home as well. As Rolling Stone noted in its 40th anniversary edition, Mama Cass Elliott's Cozy Canyon House functioned as a sort of rock salon. In a similar vein, Barney Hoskins wrote in Hotel California that Cass kept permanent open house. Also noted in Hoskins' tome was that the Laurel Canyon scene all spun around him and Cass, with the him, in this case, being David Crosby, who, like Cass, had an insatiable appetite for potent painkillers like Demerol, Dilaudid, and Pergadan. Crosby was one of many Canyonites who regularly dropped by Cass's place to hang out and engage in impromptu jam sessions and to mingle with some seriously disreputable characters. Also a regular at Cass's place, by some reports, was Charlie Manson himself, According to Ed Sanders, it was at Cass's home that Charlie first met her neighbor, coffee heiress Abigail Folger, who helped finance Kenneth Anger's films, like the one that was supposed to star Godo Polikas, but instead starred Mansonite Bobby Beausoleil. According to Maury Terry, the rather notorious Process Church of the Final Judgment which evidence suggests had deep ties to the Manson, Son of Sam, and Cotton Club murders, also came knocking on Cass's door, actively seeking to recruit her, as well as John Phillips and Terry Melcher. Terry has written that the Manson family's iconic bus was seen parked at the home of John and Michelle Phillips in the fall of 1968. Some reports also hold that Manson attended a New Year's Eve party at the couple's home on December 31, 1968, just months before the murders began. 
So close were the ties between the Mamas and the Papas and the Manson clan that both John Phillips and Mama Cass were slated to appear as witnesses for the defense at the family's trial, though neither was ever called. For a band that sang about being safe and warm if I was in L.A., the members of the Mamas and the Papas kept some pretty dangerous company in the City of Angels. Speaking of dangerous company, not long after the band hit the charts, Tamar Hodell received a postcard from Michelle Phillips asking her to watch their scheduled performance on the Ed Sullivan Show and to then meet the group at San Francisco's Fairmont Hotel before a scheduled concert. Tamar showed up with Father George at her side. The two, as with Graham and Robert Parsons, apparently still maintaining a close relationship, and Tamar, George, John, Michelle, Denny, and Cass embarked on a drug-fueled pre-show odyssey. By 1970, John and Michelle had divorced. Many years later, Michelle would reveal that their time together had included at least one episode of domestic violence, one that she was still reluctant to discuss. It was serious. I ended up in the hospital. That's all I'll say about it. The union had yielded John a second daughter, Gilliam China Phillips, born February 12, 1968, in Los Angeles. On January 31, 1972, John Phillips married for the third time to actress and Crowley aficionado Genevieve Waite. On the wedding guest list were soon-to-be Governor Jerry Brown and soon-to-be Lieutenant Governor Mike Kerb. The couple's time together would be marked by wildly out-of-control drug consumption and the birth of two more offspring, Tamerlane, whose name is perhaps an homage to Tamar Hodel, and Bijou Lily, who was taken away and placed in foster care in Bolton Landing, New York, after her drug-addled parents were deemed unfit to raise her. In June 1972, shortly after marrying Waite, Phillips moved into a canyon home at 414 St. Pierre Road that had been built by William Randolph Hearst. The Rolling Stones had just vacated the property, and their trusty sidekick, Graham Parsons, was still hanging around and would grow very close to John Phillips. Parsons, though, would soon turn up dead while John would head off to London, where he reportedly planned to record a solo album with assistance from Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. That project never got off the ground, however, as Phillips' addictions rendered him impossible to work with. Cass Elliott turned up in London the very next year, but unlike her former bandmate, her trip abroad was to be one way. On July 29, 1974, she was found dead in occasional Canyonite Harry Nilsson's London flat. Ms. Elliot, it seems safe to say, knew a little too much about the dark side of Laurel Canyon. Following the dissolution of the Mamas and the Papas, Cass had gone on to a successful solo career and had become a familiar face on American television screens. In addition to hosting two primetime network specials, she had guest-hosted The Tonight Show and had appeared on such popular early 1970s shows as The Red Skelton Show and Love American Style. She had been married twice, first in 1963 to vocalist Jim Hendrix in what was reportedly a platonic arrangement aimed at getting Hendrix a draft deferment. During that first marriage, which was annulled in 1968, 
Cass had given birth to a daughter, Owen Vanessa Elliott, born on April 26, 1967. Hendricks, however, was reportedly not the father, and Cass steadfastly refused to reveal who Owen's true father was. In 1971, following the breakup of the band, Cass married again to Baron Donald von Weidenman, a wealthy Bavarian heir. That marriage collapsed after just a few months, though, and Cass was single when she died just a few years later. Owen, already fatherless, was just seven. Denny Doherty, meanwhile, went on to host a popular variety show in Canada, as well as perform in various formations of the new Mamas and the Papas. He passed away on January 19, 2007, reportedly due to kidney failure. Michelle Phillips released an unsuccessful solo album and then switched gears and went on to a successful acting career, gracing the small screen in such hit shows as Knott's Landing, Hotel, and Beverly Hills 90210. She continued to have numerous flings and has married several more times. She is currently the only living member of the original Mamas and the Papas. As for John Phillips, in 1975 he sobered up enough to put together the soundtrack for the film The Man Who Fell to Earth, a surreal venture featuring the talents of fledgling actor David Bowie and director Nicholas Rogue, who had previously collaborated with Crowleyite Donald Camel on performance. At that same time, Phillips was working on completing a horrifically bad Andy Warhol-produced stage musical entitled Man on the Moon, which closed just two days after opening. Phillips at one time had Don Miami Vice Johnson in mind to play the lead in his space opera. Like the rest of the Hollywood notables in this story, Johnson was a canyon dweller at the time. His next-door neighbor happened to be a guy by the name of Chuck Wine, an avid occultist and buddy of Warhol, who, in addition to managing bizarre nightclub acts, directed the 1972 documentary Rainbow Bridge. Wine shared a curious nickname with fellow canyonite Charlie Manson, the Wizard. For the remainder of his career, Phillips' musical output consisted primarily of occasionally writing songs for and with others, his most well-known contribution being his co-writing duties on Kokomo, recorded and released by the Beach Boys. In 1981, Phillips found himself facing charges of trafficking large quantities of narcotics. By his own account, he had an arrangement with a pharmacy that allowed him to obtain large amounts of narcotics without prescriptions. Daughter Bijou would later say that he had actually purchased the pharmacy, guaranteeing virtually unlimited access. The charges were quite serious. In Phillips' own words, he was looking at 45 years and got 30 days. He began serving his sentence appropriately enough on April 20, and he was released just three and a half weeks later. It never hurts to have friends in high places. Phillips' circle of friends in the post-Mamas and the Papas years included J. Paul Getty Jr., Bobby Kennedy Jr., and Princess Margaret. Getty and Kennedy, both plagued by demons of their own, were likely being supplied by Phillips. Another name in Phillips' Rolodex was Colin Tennant, 
the wealthy heir of a massive petrochemical conglomerate in the UK. Tennant owned a private island in the British West Indies where wealthy friends like John Phillips and Mick and Bianca Jagger could engage in unknown activities in complete seclusion. Upon being released from his preposterously short period of confinement, Phillips put together a version of the Mamas and the Papas that included daughter Mackenzie Phillips and original lead vocalist Denny Doherty. Scott Mackenzie, who had summoned all the runaways across the country to come to San Francisco with flowers in their hair, later replaced Doherty. Lori Beebe subsequently replaced Mackenzie Phillips, after which Doherty returned once again to replace John Phillips. The band finally called it quits in 1994. Phillips had divorced Waite in 1985. In 1992, he received a liver transplant and a new lease on life. Just months later, he was photographed drinking in a bar in Palm Springs. In 1998, Phillips and the other surviving members of the Mamas and the Papas were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Three years later, on March 18, 2001, Phillips died of heart failure. The saga wasn't quite over, however. Phillips' daughters would carry on with the family tradition while spilling some dark family secrets along the way. Oldest daughter Mackenzie began her acting career at the tender age of 12 when she landed a role in what was to be George Lucas's breakthrough film, American Graffiti. Just a few years before, it will be recalled, Lucas had been an unknown cameraman at the Rolling Stones' notorious Altamont concert. During the filming of Graffiti in 1972, John Phillips, who I'm sure had lots of important business to attend to and therefore little time to look after his daughter, signed over legal guardianship of Mackenzie to producer Gary Kurtz. A few years later, in 1975, Mackenzie landed a role on what would quickly become a hit television series, One Day at a Time. During the third season, however, Mackenzie was arrested for public drunkenness and cocaine possession, after which her substance abuse problems continued to spiral out of control, causing frequent problems and considerable tension on the set of her hit show. Providing a template for Charlie Sheen to later follow, she was fired from her show in 1980. After two nearly fatal overdoses, she was invited back by producers in 1981. The following year, she collapsed on the set and was once again fired. What had once seemed a very promising acting career was over as quickly as it had begun. From the late 1980s through the early 1990s, she performed intermittently with the reformed Mamas and the Papas. In 1992, she reportedly entered a long-term rehab program that she didn't emerge from for nine months. Following that, she kept a low profile for many years. In August 2008, however, she was arrested at LAX for heroin and cocaine possession, and on Halloween Day 2008, she entered a guilty plea and was once again sent to rehab. A year later, in September 2009, Mackenzie released her tell-all memoir, High on Arrival, which painted a disturbing picture of her late father.
In addition to introducing her to drugs at the age of 11 by injecting her with cocaine, Mackenzie claimed that Papa John had raped her on the eve of her first marriage and had engaged in an incestuous affair with her that spanned a decade and ended only when she became pregnant and did not know who the father was, a scenario, it should be noted, with remarkable parallels to the ordeal endured by Michelle's surrogate mother, Tamar Hodel. John Phillips' memoir covering the time period in question made no mention of the illicit relationship with his daughter. He did, though, claim that Mackenzie was once raped at knife point by an unknown assailant. He also noted, shockingly enough, that Mackenzie's house in Laurel Canyon was destroyed by fire. That, as we all know, hardly ever happens. The year after dropping her bombshells, Mackenzie appeared on what is arguably the most appalling reality show to ever hit the airwaves, Celebrity Rehab, in a role far removed from her glory days on a hit primetime show. That same year, sister China Phillips entered rehab as well, though she was reportedly seeking relief from anxiety. China first captured the spotlight in 1990 as one-third of the vocal group Wilson Phillips, alongside Carney and Wendy Wilson, offspring of reclusive beach boy Brian Wilson. That group, though, proved to be very short-lived, as did China's musical career. In 1995, China married actor William Baldwin. In 2003, she became what Vanity Fair described as a fervent born-again Christian. She was baptized in brother-in-law Stephen Baldwin's bathtub. The magazine also quoted China as saying that, being a mom is challenging for me. My perspective is warped. Like her older sisters, Bijou Lily Phillips, born April 1, 1980, just a year before her father was harshly punished for running a major narcotics trafficking operation, merged into the fast lane at a very young age. Her mother was addicted to heroin while carrying her, and Bijou has candidly described herself as a crack baby. Raised partially in a foster home, she was reunited with her father by the courts when in the third grade. That wasn't necessarily a good thing. Described by Index magazine as a wild child who, through fate and circumstance, was somehow allowed to partake of New York's nebulous nightlife at an age traditionally more suited to playing with dolls. Bijou was a cover model from a very young age. She was also the 14-year-old star of a Calvin Klein ad campaign that many people, as well as the U.S. Justice Department, considered to be bordering on child pornography, and that Bijou herself has referred to as the kiddie porn ads. Bijou told her interviewer from Index that coaching her and creepily lurking behind the scenes of that notorious Calvin Klein photo shoot I'm guessing as a technical advisor, was this porn guy. The interviewer identified that porn guy as Ron Jeremy, who is not your run-of-the-mill porn guy, and not just because he is arguably the world's most famous porn star. He is also a very well-connected porn star, 
His mother, for example, was an asset of the OSS, precursor to the CIA. His uncle had ties to notorious gangster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, and he attended high school with none other than future CIA director George Tenet. Bijou has alluded to the fact that Mackenzie was not the only Phillips daughter to receive unwanted attention from Papa John. In her music can be found lyrics such as, He touched me wrong. Asked directly about such references, she told an interviewer that she had made this decision not to talk to the press about anything that's gone on in my life, but just to write music about it. They can interpret it themselves. Though she then quickly added, it's blatantly obvious. The youngest of the Phillips clan also acknowledged that she has a daddy tattoo on her rear. That was done during a time, she said, when I was a pretty sick puppy. Bijou made her film debut in 1999 and has had a number of low-profile film and television roles since then. Most recently, she has had a recurring role in the television series Raising Hope as, of all things, a serial killer. She is currently an avid Scientologist. Many of the problems she has faced, she ultimately realized, stem from the fact that she'd never been shown respect by my parents. I'd always been treated like an object, not a human. Chapter 19, Hungry Freaks, Daddy Frank Zappa. The fact that Frank Zappa was one of the most prominent rock star residents of Laurel Canyon didn't change the fact that he viewed the flower power underground with amused contempt. Barney Hoskins, author of Hotel California. Frank openly made fun of the very counterculture he was helping to sustain. Jefferson Airplane vocalist Grace Slick. Frank Zappa was born on the first day of winter in the year 1940 in Baltimore, Maryland. Precisely 64 years later, on the winter solstice of 2004, his first grandchild, Mathilda Plum Doucette, would be born to daughter Moon Unit Zappa. Zappa's father, Francesco Vincenzo Zappa, hailed from Partenico, Sicily, described by Zappa biographer Barry Miles as the Mafia Heartland. Francesco was of Greek and Arab ancestry, while his wife, Rosemarie, was a blend of Italian and French. Many of Francesco and Rosemarie's siblings seem to have lived very short and tragic lives including Francesco's twin sisters, who perished in a train crash. Rosemary had one sister who died at birth, another, Margaret, who only made it to the age of two, and a third who died shortly after Margaret. She also had a brother who simply vanished at the age of 19 and was never seen or heard from again. Francesco Zappa arrived in America in 1908 settling with his parents in the city of Baltimore, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. He attended the city's Polytechnic High School and then the University of North Carolina, after which he spent the rest of his life in the employ of the U.S. Military Intelligence Establishment. He and Rosemarie had four offspring, the oldest of whom was Francis Vincent, better known as Frank. 
Frank's first schooling was at the Edgewood School, part of the Edgewood Arsenal complex where his father worked and the family lived. Edgewood was, for the uninformed, the longtime home of U.S. chemical warfare research, as well as being, by the government's own admission, the site of human mind control experimentation in post-World War II years. At some point in the 1940s, the Zappa clan relocated to Florida for a short time for unknown reasons, but they soon returned to Baltimore and the Edgewood Arsenal. In 1951, Father Francesco was offered a position at Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, but he chose instead to head further west and relocate the family to Monterey, California. While there, he taught classes at the Naval Postgraduate School. After a couple years in Monterey, the Zappas relocated once again, first briefly to Claremont, before moving on to the San Diego area, the current home of the world's largest naval fleet. While there, Francesco put his skills to work on the Atlas Missile Project, a program that would produce America's very first intercontinental ballistic missiles. Zappa's area of expertise would tend to indicate that the U.S. was looking into developing chemical warheads for those ICBMs. That, though, is impossible to determine since Zappa's work in San Diego and elsewhere was classified. In the summer of 1956, the Zappa family hit the road once again, this time landing in Lancaster, California, right alongside Edwards Air Force Base. Frank Zappa wouldn't be the only rising star to later arrive in Laurel Canyon by way of the sparsely populated wasteland of Lancaster. Joining him would be tragically short-lived bird Clarence White, America vocalist Dewey Bunnell, and the indescribably bizarre Don Vliet, better known as Captain Beefheart. Shortly before the move to Lancaster, there was an unusual event in Frank's life. According to the Zappa biographies, to celebrate his 15th birthday, his mother arranged for her son a personal phone call to famed composer Edgard Varese, who at the time was out of the country and unable to take the call. Frank did, though, speak with the composer's wife, and later received, by various accounts, either a letter from Varese or a personal phone call. None of those accounts offer any clue to how Rose Marie Zappa had ready access to someone of Varese's stature. In Lancaster, Frank attended Antelope Valley High School, where he began experimenting with 8mm film and met and befriended Vliet, who would later change his surname to Van Vliet. The two graduated together in 1958, with Frank receiving a diploma, despite the fact that he was short on credits. In 1959, at the tender age of 18, Frank moved into his own apartment in Echo Park and began attending Pomona College, where he met Catherine K. Sherman. Frank's brother, Bobby Zappa, meanwhile, enlisted in the U.S. Marines. On December 28, 1960, just a week after Zappa's 20th birthday, Frank and Kay were married, and Frank began working in advertising. The marriage would last just four years. Not long after marrying Sherman, Zappa became involved with character actor Timothy Carey's bizarre underground film project known as The World's Greatest Sinner. Zappa provided the soundtrack for Carey's experimental film, which remained largely unseen for decades after its completion in 1962. 
The occult-based plot revolved around Star Carey's metamorphosis from insurance salesman to rock star to cult leader to self-proclaimed god. At around that same time, Zappa met and played occasional gigs with Terry Kirkman, who would later form yet another Laurel Canyon-affiliated band, The Association. He also began writing songs for other up-and-comers and forged a friendship and working relationship with Paul Buff, owner of the independent PAL recording studio in Cucamonga, California. Buff had studied aviation electronics in the U.S. Marines, where he graduated top in a class of 500. Following his time in the service, he secured a job at General Dynamics, where he engineered parts for guided missiles. He eventually left that job to, of all things, open his own recording studio. It was in that studio that Buff taught Zappa how to multi-track and overdub. At a time when most independent recording studios featured just mono, or at best, two-track recording capabilities, Buff's studio featured a custom-built five-track tape recorder. In March of 1963, Zappa famously appeared on the Steve Allen Show to play a bicycle as a musical instrument. That same year, Herb Cohen, who would become the manager of Frank Zappa and fellow Canyonites Linda Ronstadt, Alice Cooper, Lenny Bryce, and Tim Buckley, returned to Los Angeles. After conveniently being in the Congo at the time of the CIA-sponsored coup that toppled and led directly to the execution of Patrice Lumumba, the country's first legally elected prime minister, Cohen had spent time in Copenhagen, Denmark, where he functioned as an international arms dealer. In 1964, Zappa's marriage to Sherman collapsed, and he moved into friend Paul Buff's PAL studio, 